Well, good morning. Welcome to our very first 11 a.m. service. We're glad that y'all are here. We're going to be in Acts chapter 2, verses 38 to 40 this morning. Acts 2, 38 to 40. And uh, before we dive into the passage, I want to mention uh, an opportunity that we have here to be the church to a group of people who are in need. Many of you have read or seen, I'm sure, that there is a massive refugee crisis going on right now on the other side of the world as Syrians, millions of them, are fleeing from their country from uh, Islamic persecution into Europe and some of the countries surrounding Syria. Roughly half of the country has either been killed or fled in the last year or so. And so we as a church wanted to provide some opportunities to uh, participate and to help as uh, there is a need, because some have asked us, how can I participate? So a few opportunities. First of all, continue to pray. Prayer is the most important thing that we can do. Pray that men and women will find a soft landing place, a safe place to live, and that they will hear the good news of Jesus Christ. Secondly, we do have some organizations that we have uh, vetted, that we are uh, able to kind of turn you toward. Uh, If you're interested in giving financially toward this crisis, you can email our global outreach at grace-bible.org email address. The woman who answers that, her name is Adriana. She can provide you a list of those organizations that we are on the same page with and that we know are going to use the resources in a wise manner. So you can contact her. We'll also try to get some information up on Facebook and everything over the next week about those organizations. And then uh, we are looking into right now, our global outreach team is looking into an opportunity either next spring or next summer for those who may want to actually go and be a part in a more tangible way of helping in that region of the world. We have some partnerships in that region of the world that might allow us to assist with this refugee crisis. So just kind of keep that in the back of your mind. As we get farther into the fall, we will give you more information about those types of opportunities. All right, Acts chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 38 to 40 this morning. We're kind of zeroing in on one part of Peter's speech that we started looking at last week, but we're going to hone in on just a few verses this morning. And I, I wanted to start just by sharing with you a few jokes. Now, here's the thing. I have elementary school children, and so if you have elementary school kids, you know they are a fan of the corny pun, right? Uh, Some of you love these. Some of you hate these. So uh, this, for some of you, may be a painful couple of minutes. For some of you, you will love this. But uh, let me just share a few of the better ones that have come across our household in the last couple of years. What happened to the frog who parked illegally? He was towed. You got it. Somebody knew it. All right. Why did the tomato turn red? Because he saw the salad dressing. Right? Uh, two hats were hanging on a hat rack. What did one hat say to the other? You say here, I'll go on ahead. Okay. Okay. Did you hear about the guy whose whole left side was cut off? You got it. He's all right now. Okay. You guys, some of you guys know these. It's like you researched before you came in. All right, what did one candle say to another? Hey, I'm going out tonight. All right, another one. What did one pencil say to another? You're looking really sharp today. Okay, now, some of those jokes are better than others. I realize some of you want to throw things at me right now. Uh, Some of you love puns, but why do those work? Okay, 
Why is it that we tell jokes like that? Well, because we recognize that different words in different sentences can actually mean different things, right? Or the same word in a different sentence can mean something different, right? So the word dressing or the word sharp or whatever it may be can have a different meaning depending on the context in which you place it. That can make for some funny jokes. It can also make for some frustrating conversations, can it? All of us who are married have had that experience with our spouse, or maybe those who have roommates have had that experience where you are certain you are being crystal clear with your words, and the other person is hearing something entirely different, right? At least I've heard that happens in marriages from time to time, okay? All of us have experienced that. Uh, All of us have also experienced how tone and setting and context can make a difference in our meeting, right? So I could say to you, man, you are really good at basketball. And you could take that as a compliment, or I could say, huh, you're really good at basketball, right? And you would take it a totally different way, right? So context, tone, the words surrounding a word can help impact the meaning of that word. It can be funny in jokes. It can be frustrating in conversations. When we get to interpretation of the Bible, it can be confusing, Uh, Because there are words that we use almost without even thinking about them, and we assume that everybody knows what they mean. So, for example, the word saved. Are you saved? We use that all the time. Perhaps to ask people, do you know Jesus, and are you confident that you have eternal life? So we say, are you saved? But actually, as you look at the Bible, the context in which that word is found makes a huge difference. Uh, You can be saved from hell. You can be saved from the ongoing power of sin in your life. You can be saved from drowning in the water. Biblically, people are saved, the same word, from sickness, right? So often we use a word and we don't even think about what it may mean in another context. And when we get to the Bible, the danger is that every time we see that word, we think it has the same meaning and we don't pause to look at where it is. Now, the reason I bring this up is because the passage we're going to look at this morning is one of the most misunderstood passages in the New Testament, maybe in the whole Bible. There are a couple of words in Acts 2.38 to 40 that can be confusing if you're not familiar with where they are in the flow of the book of Acts and what these words actually mean. One of those words is repentance. What does it mean when Peter says, repent? and be baptized. The other word is baptism. We also see the word forgiveness. A number of these words in Acts 2 can cause us to misunderstand the passage. So that as you look at Acts 2.38, if you've got your Bible, Acts 2.38, Peter said to them, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So on the surface of it, it might look like Peter is saying there is something other than or in addition to faith in Jesus that is necessary for eternal life, right? On the surface, if you look at that, you might say, well, Peter says you've got to repent. Maybe that means that I have to stop sinning before I can have eternal life. Or at least maybe that means that I've got to think about all my sins and say I will stop doing them before I can have eternal life. Maybe I have to be baptized as well. Uh, There are Christian theologians who hold to these types of views, particularly on the issue of repentance. Listen, this is one prominent theologian who says this, what must we do to be saved? Turn from sin and trust the Savior. In other words, turn from sin, that's his shorthand for repent. And then he later explains this in greater detail. 
We must believe on Jesus, okay, good so far, and receive him and turn from our sin and obey him and humble ourselves like little children and love him more than we love our family, our possessions, and our own life. This is what it means to be converted to Christ. This alone is the way of everlasting life. Now, if that's the case, I'm in big trouble. If I have to do all of those things, because there are times I don't, frankly, love God more than I love all of those other things. There are times I'm proud, I'm not humble. And in fact, when I trusted Christ, I'm not sure that I had the capacity to even understand those concepts. And yet there are those that say repentance means you must commit to do better or you must stop doing wrong. So we're going to look at this passage this morning and ask the question, what here does repentance actually mean? What does it mean when Peter says to be baptized? And how are we going to apply those things in our present day context as we share the gospel and as we think about how do I come to know God? So some critical questions we're going to ask this morning. First, what is repentance? Simply, what does that mean in Acts 2.38? Is repentance required for eternal life? So that when I preach the gospel, do I always need to say, you must repent? And if so, what does that even mean? Is baptism required for eternal life? Because Peter says, be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. What does he mean? How should we explain the gospel then? All right, and how should we apply Acts 2.38 right now? We're going to look at a few of those questions this morning. And here's where we're going to land. I'm going to tip my hand before we even begin. Here's where we're going to land. Faith in Jesus is the only requirement for us to receive forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Faith in Jesus is the only requirement, right? So repentance and baptism may be critical in certain respects, but what we're going to see is ultimately even Peter in this context is saying, faith in Jesus Christ is what saves you from hell and saves you from the judgment of God and leads to eternal life. This is at the heart of of who we are as a church, and this ought to be at the heart of who we are as believers in Jesus. That we proclaim the good news that eternal life is an absolutely free gift. There's no way you can earn it. There's nothing you can do to improve it. So we're going to look at Acts 2.38. Again, Peter said to them, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. What does he mean? Let me begin by laying a little bit of historical context for Acts 2. What is actually going on in Acts 2? If you were here last week, we talked a little bit about it. You remember, this is on the day of Pentecost. Uh, The Spirit of God has come upon these Jews on the day of Pentecost, people from all over the world, but they are all there to celebrate this Jewish feast. As the Spirit of God came upon them, they began to speak in different tongues. They could hear the apostles presenting the gospel in their own language. And Peter stands up to explain to them what's going on. And he says, here's what's happened. The Spirit of God has come because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And Peter's speech emphasizes this, that God sent Jesus to be your king. And guess what you did? He says, you crucified the one that God has made Lord in Christ. It says they're pierced to the heart and they say, what what do we do? If that's true, what do we do now? All right, remember, this is a Jewish audience 
who viewed themselves as still subject to the Old Testament law. This is prior to, in the flow of the book of Acts, this is prior to the gospel being extended to the Gentiles. That's going to come a little later in the book of Acts. You're going to see the gospel begin to go beyond Jerusalem, out into Judea, into Samaria, and then to all the ends of the earth. But fundamentally, these are people who still are under a covenant with God that God made with Moses after they left Egypt. And if you remember the basis of that covenant, it wasn't that they got eternal life by doing the law, but what happened when they obeyed the law? Deuteronomy 28 to 30 tells you, if you obey the law, you will be blessed. You will have life in the land, in the promised land. You will have peace from your enemies. You will have even prosperity as a nation. If you disobey, what happens? You will be cursed. What will God do if they disobey the law, if they worship idols, if they walk away? Kick them off the land. And that happens. In 586 BC, the Babylonians came in, remember? because of the idolatry of the nation of Israel and deported them away to Babylon for 70 years. They came back and they said, okay, we're not going to worship idols anymore so we can escape the judgment of God happening again. What Peter lays out in Acts 2 is this. Now what have you done? You have rejected the king that God sent. God sent the Messiah in fulfillment of his promise to David and you had him crucified. And so they are under the understanding that there is impending judgment on their nation because they have rejected their Messiah. And in fact, if you know about the history of the nation of Israel, you know in A.D. 70, just a few years after this, in fact, Titus of Rome destroyed Jerusalem and the the nation was judged. So they say to Peter, what do we do? What do we do? See, their primary question right here in Acts 2 actually is not, how can we go to heaven when we die? Their primary question is, how can we escape the coming judgment of God on our nation? And Peter's response, he says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So let's break that down again a little farther. What is repentance then? What does that word mean? Well, literally in the Greek language, it means uh, change of mind. The word is metanoia, meta change, noia mind. All right, now often it has a, a little bit of a broader meaning in its context than just change of mind, but fundamentally it is a change that happens in your mind and in your heart that leads to some type of action most of the time. All right, so you see it throughout the, uh, the Old and New Testaments. Right, you see that concept of repentance. Let me give you a few illustrations. Luke chapter 11, verse 32. Jesus says this, The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Now, you may or may not remember the whole story of Jonah. I'm certainly certain you remember the big fish that swallowed him up. But at its core, the book of Jonah is about God sending a prophet to tell the Ninevites that if you do not repent... God's going to wipe out your city. So Jonah walks around, and he has a very short and effective sermon. He walks around for 40 days, and he says, in 40 days, or three days, excuse me, in 40 days, God will destroy this city. In 40 days, God will destroy this city. And the Ninevites hear that, and what do they do? Well, Jonah 3 tells us, says they believed God. That's the first thing they did. They believed God. They listened to Jonah, and they said, oh, that's true. And then they put on sackcloth and ashes as a sign of their change of heart 
and mine, right? It'd be like wearing a t-shirt that says, I'm really sorry for all that violence, right? They put that on, and then they call out to God, and they say, God, forgive us. And the king says, who knows? God may change his mind and not destroy us. And in fact, that's what happens, which is what makes Jonah really upset at the end of the book. What was their repentance? Where did it begin? It began when they first said, we are wrong and God is right. The way we are headed will lead to destruction, but the way of God will lead to life and escape from judgment. Another illustration from the New Testament, 2 Timothy 2. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them, what? Repentance, metanoia, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. In other words, Paul says, Timothy, when you preach, there will be people who say, Timothy, you are wrong and we are right. And he says, look, here's what you do. You pray for them, but you also gently correct them, and God may give them repentance. What is repentance? They will change their mind and they will say, you know what? We are wrong and God is right. And so they understand that what they believe about Jesus, what they believe about God is wrong. And they turn from that wrong understanding and they turn to a right understanding of who God is based on what Timothy is preaching. Let me give you one more from the New Testament. Hebrews 12, 15 to 17. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled, that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. You remember the story of Jacob and Esau. Jacob tricks Esau out of the birthright. Esau sells his birthright for a bowl of stew. And then what happens? He realizes that was dumb. And I was wrong. Right? Poor Esau, his name is still, his nickname is Red because he sold his birthright for a bowl of red stuff. Esau realizes this is wrong. And he goes to his father, Isaac, and he says, please bless me also. And Isaac says, I don't have any blessing left for you. It's too late. Your brother took the blessing. Esau repented. He changed his mind. He said, I am wrong, and this is right, but Hebrews says it was too late in that case. He could no longer inherit the blessing. All right, so as you look throughout the Scripture, what you see in the context of the word repentance throughout is this, that repentance is a change of mind or attitude. It's a turning from one idea or person toward another. Now, it often results in a change of behavior. Uh, Luke 3, 8, Jesus says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Okay, so repentance itself is not the change of behavior. It's actually the change of mind or heart that then leads to the change of behavior. Let me give you an illustration. Uh, One of the greatest controversies of our day and of our community is the issue of lanes versus canes, right? Uh, Some of you are Canes fans. Some of you are Lanes fans, right? Two competing chicken finger restaurants right in the heart of our community, right? So uh, you go, you know what? I like Canes, for example. If you say, I like Canes, you must repent, right? So imagine then that you went there this afternoon. You're on your way to lunch. You go to Canes, and as you walk up, there is a man standing outside, and he's holding a sign, and he says, repent 
for lanes is near, right? And so you walk up and you go, what is this about? He goes, you need to change your mind. You need to recognize that you are wrong and Keynes is right. And you say, how am I supposed to do that? And he said, here, taste some lanes, right? So you put it in your mouth. And what happens is you have first a mental realization, right? This is better. Then you have a heart transformation. I love this. I love this. And so you eat it. You think that's better. You think I love this. Right there, you have repented, okay? You have changed your mind and you have acknowledged this is better than this, okay? Now what happens as a result? You turn and you walk to Cain's, or to, yeah, I'm confused. Lanes. Okay, there you go. You turn and you walk to lanes. All right. What resulted from your repentance was the physical walking over here. You sit down and you eat the food. But the repentance is first and foremost a cognitive and affective type of transformation. You recognize you're wrong. You humble yourself, in this case, before God. And you say, I am wrong about what I believed about Jesus. And I will turn toward God's way of thinking. So that in Acts 2.38, here's what Peter is saying. Turn from your rejection of Jesus as the Messiah and turn toward Jesus to save you from God's wrath. All right, so then Peter is essentially not saying to them, uh, stop doing all of your sins. He's not talking about all their sins actually here. He's talking about one sin, and that is their rejection of their Savior, their belief that they could do better than Jesus. And Peter says, you cannot. So you repent. You turn from this mindset. You turn from this attitude. You turn toward Jesus. And you ask God to save you from his wrath and from his judgment. So then the question for us becomes, in our context, is repentance necessary for eternal life? Is it necessary for eternal life? Because Peter preaches it, and we see it preached a few times in the Bible, in conjunction with saving faith. Interestingly, not most of the time. Most of the time, it is trusting in Jesus that saves us from God's judgment. In fact, most of the time in the Bible, when the gospel is presented, the word repentance is nowhere to be found. And so the question is why, right? Most of the time, the biblical requirement for salvation is faith or belief or trust. Those are all synonyms to say, I put my trust in what Jesus has done and not in what I will do, have done, am doing. Acts 16.31, when Paul and Silas talk with the Philippian jailer, he says, what must I do to be saved? And what do they say? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. He doesn't say repent, just a few chapters over. John 1, John is the most evangelistic book in the whole Bible, and yet John doesn't use the word repent. Over and over and over, he says, believe. John 1, 12, as many as received him to all who believed in his name, he gave the right to be called children of God. Right? 1 John 5, verse 13, these things I have written to you so that those who believe in the name of God's only Son, may know that they have eternal life. You believe in Jesus. Trusting in Jesus saves us from God's judgment. Romans 4, verse 5, right? To all who uh, believed in him, who justifies the ungodly, he credits their faith as righteousness. Over and over again, the biblical requirement for salvation is faith or belief in Jesus. All right, so where does repentance fit in? Well, repentance is often a prerequisite. To believing. Certainly true here in Acts chapter 2. 
In order to believe in Jesus, they had to first recognize that they were wrong. In Acts 17, Paul stands up before a group of Gentiles on Mars Hill, and he says, you guys worship all of these different gods, and I am telling you now that God is calling all men everywhere to repent and trust in Jesus. Repent of what? Their trust in idols. I cannot trust in idols to save me and trust in Jesus to save me. So prior to trusting Jesus, they have to turn from these idols and acknowledge God is right. Often in our context, it may be that a person has to turn from their unbelief in God, turn from their rejection of the Scripture, turn from their self-righteousness, their belief that I can somehow earn my way into heaven and say, I am wrong about those things, and God is right. So biblically speaking, again, when repentance is used in combination with the good news of Jesus Christ, it is not used to tell those who don't know Jesus, you've got to do better, you've got to try harder, you've got to sign some sort of commitment not to sin before God will save you. Instead, it is turn from your false belief, your rejection of Jesus, and call out to God to save you from his wrath. Our doctrinal statement puts it this way. Repentance, that is to change one's mind about the person and finished work of Christ, is a vital part of believing and is no way in itself a separate and independent condition of salvation. Repentance and faith are often two sides of the same coin. And so that's why through the Scripture you don't see repentance always used in connection with the gospel because it's often implied. In order to trust Jesus, you have to abandon these false beliefs, these false gods, this self-righteousness, and turn toward Jesus. But it is always faith in Jesus by which we receive forgiveness and eternal life. As I said at the beginning, this is at the very heart of who we are as a church and who we ought to be as Christians. We're called Grace Bible Church, and there's a reason for that, because we fundamentally believe that our reception of eternal life is based upon the death and resurrection of Jesus, and God gives eternal life as a free gift to all who believe in him. So that faith in Jesus is what saves us. Repentance is often included in that faith or a prerequisite to that faith. But again, doing things or even promising not to do things is not a part of how we receive eternal life. You know why? Because if I have to turn from and stop doing all of my sin before God will save me, I'm not saved by faith through grace. How many of us even know all of our sins? Anybody in here aware of all your sins? Of course not. You and I have sins hiding under sins, under sins that we're not even aware of, particularly before we know Jesus. How many of us, even as Christians, have now stopped sinning? Of course not. If that's the requirement, we're all in big, big, big trouble. Peter says, believe in Jesus, and God gives the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's a gift. And that point will be made all the way throughout the New Testament, over and over and over again. Now, of course, there's another question that emerges from this passage. Is baptism required? for eternal life. 
Is baptism required? Because Peter says repent, and then the second part of that is, and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. All right, so what is the deal with baptism here in this context? Is it required for eternal life? Well, I will say up front, Jesus certainly commanded baptism for those who believe in him. In the Great Commission, he tells his disciples, go into all the world and share the good news. Basically, you make disciples, teach them what I taught, and then he says, baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So baptism is a commanded deal. So as as Peter is standing here on the day of Pentecost, he remembers Jesus had said, baptize those who know who Jesus is and believe in him. And so Peter includes baptism in his speech. Jesus commands it. But what's interesting is it is always a response to receiving eternal life through faith rather than a means. Even here, if you follow the flow of Acts chapter 2, what you'll find is that uh, it says they believed in his word, and then what happened? They were baptized. As you walk throughout the book of Acts, you'll see that pattern repeatedly. Acts chapter 8, when Philip shares the gospel with this Ethiopian official. As soon as the man believes, he goes, hey, look, there's some water. Is anything preventing me from being baptized? And it says, so Philip baptized him in response to his hearing of the word. Uh, There is nothing magical about being dipped in water, right? Uh, There is nothing magical, but the early church did closely link the sign of baptism with the reality Okay, so uh, if you look at 1 Peter 3, right, Peter has probably the two uh, toughest statements about baptism in the New Testament. 1 Peter 3, he says, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Now watch this, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, he says, it's not actually being dipped in the water that saves you. Instead, it is that internally, baptism represents what has happened in your heart, that I'm appealing to God for a good conscience on the basis of what Jesus has done. And baptism is a response to that reality. Right? Water is not magical. There is nothing magic about going underwater. Uh, this summer and next summer, millions of people across our country will be dipped in water. They'll go swimming on the beach. They'll go in their swimming pools. Are they saved when they dive off the high dive? Right? Of course not. You can be baptized. You can be dipped. Baptism is a Greek word that simply means to be dipped. But without faith, you are not saved. Similarly, with trust in Christ, you have eternal life, even if you have not been baptized. However, If you choose not to be baptized, you are being disobedient because Jesus commanded it. But the water does not save. Peter says it is the appeal to God. It's what it represents. What's confusing in passages like this for us is that they closely linked the sign of baptism with the reality. We do that with certain things in our culture today. How do you know that a person is married? Well, they have a ring usually, right, on their left uh, hand, on this finger of their left hand. They have a ring. Uh, we tie that sign so closely to the reality that if you know somebody who has been dating a person for a while, if you know a young man who's been dating a young woman for a while, you may say to him, you know what, it's about time for you to what? Give her a ring. Now, he could give her a ring without being married, right? You could put on a ring and not be married, right? There may not even be anybody who wants to marry you but you could put on the ring. It doesn't make you married. It just means you got on a ring, right? But we tie that symbol very closely, even in songs. 
we do that. If you like it, then you should have put a what? Ring on it, right? And everybody knows what that means. There's a country song. It's time to what? Put a ring on the finger I'm wrapped around. And everybody knows they're going to get married. You hear that symbol. You see that symbol. If you are 20 or 30-something and you meet a person and you're single and they are roughly your age and they are attractive to you, what do you do? You look at that finger, don't you? It's frustrating if they stand like this, isn't it? Because the sign is so closely tied with the reality that they become stand-ins. Now, again, technically, I could wear it and not be married. I could take it off and still be married. But when you see it, it's so closely connected that the two fit together. Similarly, with baptism, throughout the early church, the two are so closely connected. It is expected when you trust in Jesus for forgiveness of sins, you'll be baptized. And so they tied those two things together. It wasn't until the second century that they began to have baptism classes to try to prevent, essentially, pretenders from coming in as spies, saying, I believe, I'll be baptized, and then spying out the church. They would have, after a while, actually, a year-long instructional process before they'd let you get baptized. But prior to that, what happened was, I believe, time to be baptized. To acknowledge publicly what has already happened internally, that the Spirit of God has entered my heart because I believed in Jesus. Right? So baptism is a symbol that represents that you, have been, that you have been filled with the Spirit, that you have trusted in Christ, and it is a public way of professing your faith. So Peter says to them, repent, turn from your rejection of Jesus, and come forward after you believe in Him and publicly profess that he is your king, he is your Messiah, to escape the wrath of God. All right, so that leads us then to this question. How do we then explain the gospel? Do we want to explain it always like Peter did? Well, as you see throughout the scripture, again, usually it is trusting in Jesus. And here's the message you see. All of us are sinners facing God's judgment. Uh, For those who do not know Jesus today, uh, they are still facing God's judgment. You may not be a Jewish person facing national judgment from the Romans and from God, but you are a person, because of your sin, facing the judgment of God, right? You face, apart from Jesus Christ, an eternity in hell separated from him. All of us are sinners facing the judgment of God. How did God resolve that? Jesus died for our sins and rose again. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He died for our sins and he rose again, defeating death, defeating sin. And then God offers that when we trust in Jesus alone for forgiveness of sins and eternal life, God gives those things to us freely. The gift of the Holy Spirit, Peter says, is available to those who trust in Jesus. And so for you and me, as we interact with our neighbors with our co-workers, with our family. The message is not that you must clean up your act before God will accept you. The message is not that there's a checklist of things to do. The good news is this, that God has provided all you need through his son, Jesus Christ. And to all who believe, he will wash you clean, not with water on the outside, but with his spirit on the inside. So you are in a place now where you can worship him and know him. And the Spirit of God then moves through us to produce his fruit in our lives. Again, this is at the heart of who we are as a church. 
because we are deeply committed to guarding the good news. It's not good news if I have to earn the gift. It's not good news if there's a long list of things I have to do before God will accept me. It is good news that despite the fact that I'm a sinner, Jesus died for me. So we explain the gospel in those terms. Again, faith in Jesus is the only requirement for us to receive forgiveness of sins and eternal life. A few applications then this morning. First of all, if you're here this morning and you have not yet trusted in Jesus, if you're here this morning and maybe you fit in that category of somebody thinking, you know what, if I just work hard enough, if I'm just good enough, God will accept me. Actually, I think that Peter and Paul in Acts would both say, repent of that unbelief and turn toward Jesus in faith and accept his free gift. You're here this morning and you don't yet know him. The good news is that Jesus died for your sins and paid for all of them and rose again so you can have eternal life if you believe. If you already do believe in him, then guard the good news. Guard the good news and proclaim it freely, proclaim it clearly that trusting in Jesus is the path to know God and to eternal life. And then thirdly, allow the Spirit then to produce his fruit in your life. Right? Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, what we see is that the Spirit of God then moves among these people and they give of their time and their resources and their concern and compassion to others, not so that God will accept them, but because God has accepted them in Jesus Christ and the Spirit now moves among that church in mighty ways. So that when Paul wrote the book of Galatians, he could say the fruit of the Spirit is, right, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, all of those things that reflect the character of Jesus Christ flow from a relationship with him. But they're not a requirement preceding a relationship with him. But as a church, we say, we want the Spirit of God to teach us who God is and then move among us to make us men and women effective in sharing the gospel, effective in reflecting his character so that his greatness and glory can be seen everywhere. So we allow the Spirit of God to produce his fruit in our life because he moves mightily in those who have been cleansed and because we are grateful and overwhelmed by the free gift of God given to us through Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, we are so thankful for your word this morning. We acknowledge that at times we struggle to understand it. I pray you would help us understand. Father, we acknowledge that at times we're tempted to believe even that somehow we have earned your favor. And so, Father, I pray through the power of your Spirit, we would reject that lie and turn toward you in faith. Father, I pray that as we go out into our world and into our community, that we would bring good news. That no man can, can earn approval from you or eternal life, but you give it. It's a gift. The best thing in the world in the universe, is given freely by a God who loves us. Let us cling to that message. Let us guard that message. And Father, produce your fruit in our lives to validate that message.
as we speak. We pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.